If you have ever received a clear stone and wondered whether or not it was a diamond, there's a simple test that you can administer to determine whether or not it is. If you take that stone and you heat it up under a flame for 30 seconds and then drop it into a glass of cold water, you will know very quickly whether or not it's a diamond because the rapid change in temperature from heat to being cold overcomes the tensile strength of most materials like glass and quartz and so it'll shatter. But if it's a diamond, it won't affect it because a diamond is strong enough to withstand the heat. An authentic diamond won't be damaged by heat. In a similar way, authentic gospel ministry will not be damaged by difficulties. Rather, it will endure difficulties. It will persevere through hardships and trials and adversities. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches us in the letter of 2 Corinthians that we have been studying over the last few minutes. He writes, or last few months, because he writes this letter that, <laughs> you wish it were only a few minutes, don't you? Uh, he writes the letter to respond to critics who have come to the church, infiltrated the church, and begun to turn the affections of the church away from him as an apostle. These critics have criticized him. They've questioned his apostolic authority. They have expressed their uh, doubt about his ability to serve as an apostle. They have questioned whether or not could, God could really be blessing him as an apostle. And consequently, they are questioning whether the gospel that he has preached is actually what God has revealed. So Paul responds to this situation at the church at Corinth, the church he planted, a church he lived among for 18 months, by writing this letter we call 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, we find him very reluctantly defending himself and his apostolic authority to these Corinthians. Throughout the letter, we find insights of what it means to follow Christ, what it means to seek to make his salvation known to others, to engage in gospel ministry. And contrary to his critics, which in chapter 11, verse 5, he derisively calls super apostles, Paul understands that authentic Christian ministry cannot be measured by mere outward appearances or outward standards of success. On the contrary... Since authentic Christian ministry not only proclaims Christ, but also follows in the footsteps of Christ, it will inevitably be met with opposition, hardships, and trials. And if you stop and think about it, that only makes sense. Because after all, Jesus Christ himself suffered. He was crucified in the pursuit of fulfilling his mission. In order to save his people from their sins, he had to endure opposition against himself. He submitted himself to be executed on a cross. And he is our master. So it just stands to reason that those who would follow in his footsteps and those who would seek to continue that mission in making his salvation known to others could also expect to suffer. 
In our ongoing study of 2 Corinthians today, we come to a section in which Paul elaborates some of the difficulties and trials that he experienced as an apostle. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 3 through 13. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 3 through 13. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, this text is found on page 966 and 967. And I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word in front of you to get your eyes on it because I'm going to be referring to this. All we're going to do today is work through these words that come from the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, then you're probably going to be lost pretty quickly and uh, not know exactly what it is I'm talking about. So please follow along in the Scriptures, 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 3. I'll read down through verse 13. So hear the Word of the Lord. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found within our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen widen your hearts also. A ministry that endures hardships demonstrates its authenticity. This is what Paul is arguing in this list of hardships that he gives us in these verses. In verses 3 and 4, he reiterates that he and his apostolic team have done nothing to put a barrier between anyone and Jesus Christ. That he's conducted himself as a minister of Christ to follow Christ and to take not only the message of Christ, but the very way of Christ and how he proclaims that message. He worked hard to live a commendable life, as he puts it, in every way. That's verse 4. By that, Paul doesn't mean that nobody ever got upset with him. He doesn't mean that nobody ever found fault with him. What he means is that he has been very careful in the way he's carried out his ministry to do so, so that the Lord will be honored and all of these accusations will not be able to be proven true. To make his point, he launches into what one writer has called a lyrical defense of his ministry. There is a rhythmic, poetic quality to those verses that I just read. By listing out the various difficulties he's endured, Paul turns the accusations of his critics upside down. 
the very things that they point to in his life, his experiences, his trials, as disqualifying him from being an apostle of Jesus Christ, he points to as evidence that authenticates his apostolic authority. And not just because he suffered, but because he has endured suffering as he's lived through them. And that endurance, he says, authenticates his apostolic ministry. A ministry that endures hardships demonstrates that it's the real thing. Determining the exact grammatical structure of these verses that I just read is very difficult. It's challenging because it has kind of a sing-songy quality to it. Paul is using some rhetorical devices in order to make his point. In the language in which Paul originally wrote this letter, there are 28 descriptions in the verses I read of his ministry. And I want us to look at those 28 descriptions. The first 18 are introduced by the word in, at least in the Greek, it is that preposition in. English translations omit it at various points and then change it to by or use by in verses 6 and 7. But if you're reading this in the original language before every one of those descriptions, you would find that little preposition in, the instrumentality of which the thing is called into play and into question. The next three descriptions in verses 7, the middle of verse 7 through the first part of verse 8, are introduced by the Greek preposition that we normally translate through. And it is translated through in the last two, but not the first. The first it's translated with. It has the same basic idea, but typically we would translate that through. And then the final seven descriptions in the middle of verse 8 through verse 10 are introduced by the word as. And again, you see that in the repetition, how Paul says people regarded him, how they treated him like this, as this, when in reality... The truth is something different. I think it's proper for us to understand Paul's reference in verse 4 to great endurance as the general heading for the things that follow. He's introducing this list that he continues on down through verse 10. So what he's saying then is this in verse 4, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, and then the list follows that demonstrates specific examples of how he has endured in ministry despite all kind of opposition. So what are we to make of this? How are we to approach this? Well, if you look in the middle of verse 4 and verse 5, you'll see that Paul describes how he has persevered with great endurance in ministry through a variety of trials, a variety of trials. This part of the list divides naturally into three groups of three different trials in each group. If you look at the first group in the last part of verse 4, he lists out what we might call general trials. Do you see those words? Afflictions, hardships, calamities. By afflictions, it's just the, the main word used in the New Testament for trials. It encompasses all sorts of difficulties that come into a person's life. This is the word Jesus used in John 16, 33 when he told his disciples before he was crucified, in this world, you will have afflictions. They are going to come from a variety of sources in a variety of ways. The word hardships speaks of crises 
Things unanticipated that arise in a moment. Pressures that come. Something that can lead to severe emotional distress. Paul said, I experienced that. Calamities is another word for distress. It carries with it this sense of internal anguish. And so they're general trials that he persevered through. But then, beginning in verse 5, he speaks of trials that were specifically inflicted on him by other people. You see these words? Beatings, imprisonments, riots. Well, they're just what they sound like. Being physically abused through punishment administered by others. With rocks, with rods, with fists. Being jailed so that freedom is lost and he's told where to go, being chained in prison, riots where people stir up a crowd to come against him, to try to overtake him and have him put to death or put him to death themselves. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see many instances recounted where the very things that Paul just lists here without elaboration are actually recorded as having happened in places like Ephesus, and Lystra, where there were those that wanted to put him to death but simply could not. After these trials are inflicted by others, in the latter part of verse 5, you see Paul describes trials that we might say are self-inflicted, or are chosen, things that he could have avoided Because of his commitment to his mission, he didn't. Labors, hard work, burdensome work, work that required that which is above normal. Sleepless nights, probably because he couldn't afford sleep to do what he needed to do. And because of the burden that he felt for people, for churches, sleep evaded him hunger this could be a reference to fasting it probably refers more to going hungry because he was without ample food at certain times in pursuit of his gospel ministry these are afflictions that the apostle paul chose to endure because he determined to give himself heart and soul to the work of gospel ministry in this sense Paul refused to be a professional. He refused to look upon his role as an apostle as a mere profession. And so Paul would have nothing with what today we often hear about known as professional distance. That's the way that certain workers in the caring professions are trained to relate to the people to whom They are ministering care. It's the determination by a a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, sometimes by a pastor, where they're encouraged not to get too close to patients, to students, to church members, so that you make yourself emotionally vulnerable to them. Now, there is a good point to be made in certain professions for maintaining a professional distance. If you've got a heart problem and you need heart surgery, you don't want your cardiologist emotionally distressed because of his relationship with you whenever he's opening up your chest. 
you want there to be an emotional distance. But when it comes to pastoral ministry, when it comes to gospel ministry and taking the message of Jesus Christ and commending that message and living among people and trying to help people to see and believe and taste and live in the light of all that God has done for us in Christ, there cannot be professional distance and have an authentic ministry. There inevitably will be emotional vulnerability. And Paul experienced that in all of these things that he lists in our text. He knew the sorrows that came with caring. He knew the deprivation that resulted because he would not keep his distance or check out when things got too difficult. Authentic gospel ministry will not avoid these kinds of trials, nor will it turn and run every time such trials appear. Rather, as Paul demonstrates, it will be willing to endure a wide variety of such trials. But how did he do it? How was Paul able to endure? How is any gospel minister able to endure trials? Well, having, to, having described some of the kinds of trials that he did endure, he goes on and tells us how he endured them in verse 6 and then the first part of verse 7. There we see that gospel ministry endures because of grace that is given by the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions in these words that follow in verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 a variety of graces that are created by the Holy Spirit inside of a person. Look at verse 6. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. These are a variety of blessings, graces that operated in Paul because of the role of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. He was enabled by these graces to persevere. And right in the middle of the list... You see it? The Holy Spirit. He's the source of all of these graces. So purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, love, truthful speech, these are all the result of the Spirit's working in his life. As is, as he mentions, the power of God. The point Paul is making here is that it wasn't simply his own personal resolve that got him through. It wasn't his iron will. It wasn't simply human strength. It wasn't a hard head that got him through. The Holy Spirit got him through by working these various fruit, these various graces in his life. Every Christian, like Paul, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Which means, brothers and sisters, when we engage trials, when they come to us, we are not left on our own to try to endure them. The Spirit is within us. The same Spirit who worked all of these graces in Paul's life. We are never left to our own resources to go through trials. That's Paul's point. So how did he get through? By the ministry of the Spirit of God, the living God who indwelt him. Well, gospel ministry endures through various trials because of the grace given by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I want to see in this text with you this morning, beginning in the middle of verse 7, 
through the first part of verse 8, that gospel ministry endures through personal holiness. Listen to the way Paul puts it. He says, with the weapons of righteousness, literally, if we were going to translate it literally, we would say through the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. When Paul says the weapons of righteousness, he is referring to personal righteousness. A personal righteousness as opposed to a declared righteousness that is ours. There are two kinds of righteousness that belong to every Christian. The first is this declared righteousness. It's our status before God. It's the way God regards us when we look to Him, relate to Him, because we're relating to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul referred to in verse 21 of chapter 5 when he says that for our sakes God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We become righteous in God's sight when through faith in Jesus Christ we are assured our sins have been credited to Him and His righteousness has been credited to us. And that changes our status before God forever. That's justification. That's what the Bible means by the word justification. And when you first trust Jesus Christ, you are fully, completely justified. You'll never be more justified than in that initial moment of faith, trusting Christ and His righteousness. You can live a million years and you'll never be more justified in that, than in that first moment because your status before God is complete on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You are declared righteous. But whereas our righteous status before God is complete and will never change, our personal righteousness is a matter of our inward character before God. And this is something that involves ongoing renewal and growth. It takes place as a result of a Christian being born again. So it's our status, not only our status is changed before God, but our natures are changed before God. And whereas your status is complete forever, your nature is progressively growing in righteousness. Inwardly, you become more and more like Christ. Inwardly, you fight those battles of putting sin to death and looking to Jesus to be conformed to Jesus by living according to God's revealed will. So a Christian grows in righteousness. Paul's referring to that personal righteousness when he speaks of the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. It's almost as if he's got envisioned here a soldier who has a shield in one hand and a sword in the other. There's no substitute for personal holiness in a Christian's life and certainly in a minister's life. Kent Hughes makes this statement. In frankest terms, the ministry is a character profession. Righteous living must be at its heart. Personal righteousness on the part of a gospel minister, is needed in order to withstand 
the attacks that come through various trials. Paul speaks of this in verse 8. To withstand the ups and downs of ministry, what is needed is growth in righteousness. Look at the way he puts it. He speaks of honor and praise as well as dishonor and slander. Honor and praise, when people speak well of you. Dishonor and slander, when people speak ill of you. A minister's personal holiness and integrity is what will keep him grounded in both circumstances. When honor and praise is given, he will remember, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I am what I am by the grace of God, and he will not let those accolades knock him off of living by the grace of God or cause him to think that he's sufficient in and of himself. And when dishonor and slander come, he can pillow his head at night assured that the Lord knows the truth and that his record is accurate in heaven no matter what might be said on earth. Well, not only does gospel ministry endure through various trials and endure because grace is given in the Holy Spirit and through personal holiness, but finally this morning what I want us to see is that gospel ministry endures complete misrepresentation by others. Look at the second part of verse 8 all the way down through verse 10. In this this passage, this section, Paul gives us seven contrasts that distinguish between the false way that he has been characterized and the actual truth of what was going on in his life. He says, treated, when, when people treated me this way, people regarded me this way. Just look at the seven ways that he was disregarded, treated wrongly. He says, as imposters, as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. You think about this. Paul, accused of being an imposter. A deceiver. Somebody who's pretending to be something he never intends to be. Somebody who just has taken the mantle of apostle upon himself. Accused of being unknown. You're just a nobody. Paul's a nobody. I mean, look at his life, insignificant, as dying, that is, forgotten. Does God really care about him? Look at all the things that's going on in his life. He's forgotten. He's on a fool's errand, as punished. Don't you think a guy who has had everything happen to him that Paul had happen to him must have made God angry somehow? Don't you think God's really not pleased with Paul? He's punishing him. He was treated as sorrowful. I mean, look at his life. Look at the hardships. Look at the heartbroken relationships. The betrayal. Paul was betrayed. People turned away from him. He had to be a man of sorrow. As poor. I mean, look at Paul. He doesn't have a lot of resources. Nobody would ever confuse him with a wealthy man as having nothing. Nothing this world values. That's the way he was treated. <clears throat> that's the way he was regarded. But that's not the way he actually was. It's not the way he regarded himself. Look at the way he 
contrasts how he was treated versus how he saw himself. As imposters and yet true. Accused of being a deceiver and yet honestly called by God and sent by God. As unknown and yet well known. Unknown maybe to the world, but well known to the God on high who created me and has commissioned me. As dying, and yet, behold, we live filled with life. Paul saw himself filled with this abundant life Jesus promised, eternal life that overflowed in his relationships. As punished, but not killed. Yes, we accept the discipline of the Lord and the difficulties that have come into my life, but God has not designed those difficulties to kill me he's maturing me he's pruning me he's making me more like his son as sorrowful yet always rejoicing that's a great phrase I think that may be a key to mental health for Christians learning how to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing how can you always be rejoicing when people falsely accuse you betray you whenever you're beaten you're imprisoned whenever you're threatened how can you be always rejoicing you can be always rejoicing when you learn what Paul learned to rejoice in the Lord when the Lord is your joy and your strength because he never changes and so people turn against you opposition comes trial comes deprivation comes the Lord's the same and if you have grounded your joy in the Lord you can be like Paul sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich. Paul outwardly was poor, but he was rich toward God. And like his master, Jesus Christ, of whom he writes that we will see in the ninth chapter, verse 8 of this letter, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich, Paul, like Jesus, made himself poor, willingly lived that way in order that others might be made rich in God. He chose it. And so people look at him and say, oh, you poor thing. He says, yeah, but the way that God has built me has enabled me to help others become rich in him. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. As he had previously written to this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, all things are yours. If you're in Christ, all things belong to you. As he says to the Romans in Romans 8, we are heirs with Christ of everything. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And we, the followers of Christ, are going to be the ones who inherit that. C.S. Lewis once put it like this, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Paul understood that. So he didn't view his life the way that his critics and many others viewed his life. He didn't look only to the things that are seen, but also to the things that are unseen, that are eternal and That made all the difference in the world to him. That enabled him to persevere through all kinds of trials as he carried out his mission as an apostle of Jesus. And those trials, far from disqualifying him, those served to demonstrate his authenticity as he persevered through them. 
Brothers and sisters, it's important for us to try to understand Paul's point of view, to try to get Paul's perspective. Trials, even severe trials, do not mean that you are necessarily thereby unfit to serve the Lord in vital gospel ministry. On the contrary, persevering through severe trials can demonstrate the authenticity of such a ministry. Paul lived in such a way that his life put on display that having Jesus was more valuable than having all these things that the world values. More valuable than wealth. More valuable than health. More valuable than lots of friends who always are standing with him. More valuable than people thinking well of him all the time. Having Jesus was more valuable to Paul than all of these other things, anything that the world could ever offer. Has Jesus become more valuable to you in that way? Is Jesus more valuable to you than what people think about you? Is he more valuable to you than the opportunities to pursue a life of ease? Friend, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you're not trusting Christ, you're welcome here always. I want to ask you, have you ever discovered anything in your life like that? Anything that's so valuable that everything else just kind of pales in comparison? Why do you think Jesus was so valuable to Paul? Why do you think he committed himself to the way of Christ to make Jesus known to others even in the onslaught of such opposition and deprivation. It's because Paul knew what it was to have his life changed. Paul was a religious leader, highly regarded. He was on the fast track to stardom in Judaism when he met the real Jesus. And when Jesus came to Paul, changed his life, forgave his sin, reconciled him to God, Paul never got over it. He never got over it. And he came to realize that everything he thought he was attaining, that he desired living apart from Christ, was really found in Christ. And so Paul was willing to treat everything else as insignificant because of what God gave him in Christ. Wouldn't you like to have something like that? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have something in your life that you don't have to pretend is more valuable than anything else, but you come to discover is more valuable. Well, you can discover it. It's available to you in this message the Scripture calls the Gospel. The good news of what God has done for people like you and me by sending His Son into the world to take our sin upon Himself, to bear that before God and to suffer execution, punishment, payment for our sin so that we don't have to bear our sin anymore. If you'll trust Christ, if you believe Christ, Take him at his word. You bow to Christ. Call him Lord. Turn away from your sin. Offer yourself up to Christ. You'll experience what Paul experienced. You'll come to see what he saw. You'll come to know that having Jesus is more valuable than anything this world could ever offer to you. And it is the one thing this world can never take from you. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn from Paul to see 
how he lived this way and in living this way opened up his life to his fellow believers in Corinth. Look at these last couple of verses beginning in verse 11. Paul wraps up this section of his letter by making an appeal. An appeal as a father to children. He says in verse 11, we've spoken freely to you Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, and here he does it again, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. He's not trying to manipulate them. He's not trying to guilt them into anything. He's not trying to make them aware that they've hurt his feelings. He's simply being honest and candid with them. He's saying, look, I've kind of opened up my insides. I've given you a glimpse into the way I think, how I respond to all these accusations, how I've lived my life through all of these trials. How can you keep your hearts, therefore, close to me? What's happened to make your affection toward me grow cold? I've spoken openly to you. My life and ministry is well known to you. Why are you turning away from me? He wants them back. He wants the relationship that has been strained to be healed. An authentic ministry of the gospel is going to endure trials. And it must endure trials in a way that it maintains a posture toward people who are following Christ with them that is open, that is willing to be entreated, and in fact entreats those where there might be tensions. Wherever the gospel is preeminent, brothers and sisters, this should be the way relationships operate. An openness to speak, to listen, and where there are Issues that need to be reconciled, to be reconciled. That's what Paul is saying here in these closing verses. I've opened wide my heart to you. Open your heart wide to me. That's how brothers and sisters must live together. It's how authentic gospel ministry must operate in a local church. It's the way of Christ. It's the way God calls us to live. May he empower us to follow the example of our older brother Paul in living just that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. We thank you for Paul. Thank you for revealing Jesus to Paul in such a way that Jesus became more precious to him than life itself. Thank you for his vulnerability in opening up his life to the Corinthians and seeking to live in confidence on the basis of the gospel by pleading with them to be restored to him. God, give us that. I pray that if there are strained relationships in this congregation, that you would cause the power of the gospel to rest so heavily upon us that we'd be set free from resentments, and unforgiveness, and sin, and that for Jesus' sake, we would be able to love and restore and move forward in making Christ known. Reveal yourself to those here today that have never tasted to see that you're good. They don't know. They don't see what Paul knew and saw. Speak to them, O oh God. And call them to yourself. Grant them forgiveness. Grant them new life for Jesus' sake. Amen.